Psalm number 6, beginning at verse 1. The word of the Lord. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in fact, there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Here I the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from the letter to the Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 5, beginning at verse 1, we'll be reading from verse 10 this evening. The word of our God. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Please turn with me once again back to Psalm chapter 6. Psalm 6, beginning at verse 1, is this will be the primary portion of God's word for our evening sermon. One of the most important ingredients to a happy life is knowing that there is someone by your side who is absolutely and unreservedly committed to your well-being. Not only is that the wisdom of the ages, the longest study on human happiness ever conducted has concluded the same thing.
studies at Harvard began way back during the Depression. In 1938, studying students there, and they wanted to follow them throughout their whole lives. And the study is still going on today, more than eight decades later. And they followed out with those original students, but additional students and future years of students. They eventually spread it out to studying people in the community that didn't have the privilege of going to Harvard. And they traced their children. Now the study has been going for more than eight years, 80 years. And what they were hoping to do was to determine what were the things that led to people having healthy and happy lives. Uh, a number of really notable individuals who participated in this study, such as President John F. Kennedy and the famous editor of the Washington Post, Bill Bradley. These individuals and now their children have been followed throughout their lifetimes. Some have become rather famous in what we would consider from a worldly standpoint quite successful. And other people, even from very wealthy backgrounds and people that seem very gifted, made shipwreck of their lives through drug addictions and alcoholism and, and wild financial choices and so on. But here's the really striking thing about this study. On one hand, it's rather obvious. What the researchers have discovered is that far and away the greatest contributor to human happiness was that individuals had a few strong relationships. Even if those relationships were a bit tumultuous at times, if the individuals reported that even one other person was deeply committed to their well-being, they had a much higher degree of self-reported happiness, and get this, they also lived longer and had healthier lives. In fact, a number of studies have shown that people's level of satisfaction with the relationships at age 50 was a better predictor of their future physical health than their cholesterol levels were. That is, this is something that isn't just marked out in terms of how people self-report their emotions, it actually impacts our health. Of course, what the scientists had discovered is something that we all instinctively realize is true. One of the most important ingredients to a happy life is to know that someone is by your side, someone who is absolutely and unreservedly committed to your well-being. Uh, this may explain why, while songs come and go and they are quickly forgotten, some songs like A Bridge Over Troubled Water or you have a friend, still resonate with us five decades after they were released. We all want to know that there is someone who will come running in our time of need, someone who is absolutely and unreservedly committed to being on our side. And the Lord is that very thing for his people. Yet sometimes we need to work through a veil of tears to remind ourselves that this is so. Tonight we're going to focus on three truths about the Lord, which will bring us a great deal of comfort in the midst of the hardships of this present life. First, the Lord is a God of steadfast love. Second, the Lord delights in the praise of his people. And third, 
the Lord is the God who hears and answers our prayers. Those are so foundational, we really need to get them down. First, the Lord is a God of steadfast love. Second, the Lord delights in praise of his people. And third, the Lord is a God who hears and answers prayers. Yet before we dive into this psalm, in terms of these three great truths, we need to ask ourselves what sort of psalm this actually is. Now historically in the West, this has been classified as one of the penitential psalms. There are seven psalms in the Psalter of the 150 that are classified as penitential psalms, and that means they're psalms that deal with people confessing their guilt, their sin, and crying out to God for mercy. Last week we looked at Psalm 51, and quite obviously, Psalm 51 is a penitential psalm. It's a psalm that David wrote after he committed adultery with Bathsheba, and had Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, put to death in military battles. David is crying out and asking the Lord for mercy and forgiveness. The reason why Psalm 6 is also known as a penitential psalm comes from the opening three verses. Please look there with me. Verses 1 through 3. David writes, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for my own languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul is also greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Now this does sound an awful lot like the psalmist is very concerned that the Lord might be judging him, rightly judging him, in the Lord's anger. And he's pleading for the Lord's favor instead. David is pleading for mercy, grace, and deliverance, even though he's aware that he, in fact, is a sinner. So I don't think there's any reason that we need to abandon this tradition of considering this one of the penitential psalms, which in fact is classified in the West as far back as the 6th century AD. But nevertheless, I think we do need to point out that this is a very different sort of penitential psalm than Psalm 51. That while there's an awareness of being a sinner in the presence of a holy God, no specific sins are ever mentioned. And there isn't any actual confession of sin taking place in this prayer. Furthermore, instead of the prayer concluding with the forgiveness of sins, it concludes by speaking of enemies who will be turned away in shame. So I'd like to offer a slightly different way of looking at this psalm, not seeing it primarily as a psalm of confession and dealing with sin, but rather a psalm of someone who's struggling with spiritual depression. Now, the distinction I'm making by calling it spiritual depression is not to say that there weren't other factors involved, or clearly circumstantial factors involved, and we know that depression can be quite complicated. But I'm calling it spiritual depression because at the heart of this psalm is David shifting from thinking that God is against him to realizing that God is for him. It's the struggle and the moaning of life in the midst of hardships and adversities while feeling that God is far away from us, or perhaps that the Lord is the one bringing these hardships into our lives, that leads to spiritual depression. 
down with me to verses 6 and 7. I'm skipping ahead here, but I think this will help you see that the psalm really does, at its very heart, rotate around this issue of spiritual depression. And I think verses 6 and 7 will make this obvious to us. David writes, I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Now that picture of David soaking his bed with his tears at night is one of the most vivid portraits of depression in the Bible, and it's one that most of us can relate to at different points in our lives. That we feel so overwhelmed by circumstances, we feel abandoned by everyone around us, we don't even know how to pray, and all we know how to do is to pour out our hearts through weeping. The occasion for David's depression is his foes. That's very clear in the psalm. But I want to suggest that something else is at play as well. For at the end of the psalm, David's circumstances haven't changed at all, but his attitude has changed entirely. His despair has been lifted and replaced by a strong and certain hope. So why is David enduring such deep spiritual depression in the first place? I think this is an important question for us to ask ourselves because all of you either have experienced this or very likely will experience this at some point in your lives. So we want to ask, why does David experience this spiritual depression? And what should we do about it when this happens to us? David's situation is bitter. Yet when he thinks of the Lord, instead of this bringing him comfort, Remembering that the Lord is that friend who sticks closer than a brother, the Lord who loves him with an everlasting love. When David thinks of the Lord, he imagines this might be the very reason why all the hardships have come into his life, that they are coming to him as the Lord's chastisement over his own sin. On the one hand, that's a fairly natural thing for anybody who takes God seriously to consider. Once you confess that the living God is sovereign over everything that ever happens, then everything that happens in your life is because the God that you know has foreordained that. And so you might be drifting over to thinking the Lord is bringing these hardships into my life because the God who I thought was for me is at least in this moment against me. This is also why I describe this experience as spiritual depression rather than simply as depression. In the midst of the hardships and adversities of life, David is experiencing a season where he is at least wondering whether the Lord has brought these circumstances into his life in order to chastise him for his sin. So what do you do when you experience times like that? Notice I didn't ask, what do you do if you experience times like this? I am going to go out on a limb here and assume that all of you have either experienced this in the past, or I'm comparing you to the reality that you are very likely to experience this at some point in your future. So what do you do? What do you do when the Lord, the one person that you're used to leaning upon, knowing that he would never leave you nor forsake you, suddenly seems to be either indifferent to your suffering 
or perhaps even the cause of your suffering in this life. David begins by reminding himself, and the Lord, because he's praying, but the Lord is a God of steadfast love. Look at verse 4 with me. David prays, Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. But David is boldly calling the Lord to either turn or to return. Both of those are very good translations of this passage. It's hard to decide between either one of them. Both translations, turn or return, fit the context. David has endured a sense of the Lord's absence, so he's calling out to the Lord that the Lord would restore to him the joy of his salvation, and that the Lord would show himself faithful on behalf of his servant. When you feel distant from the Lord, this isn't something that you need to go off and fix by yourself. You have those moments in life where you feel that the Lord has become very distant from you, almost an abstract concept that you're reading about, and you know truths about God, but you don't have the sense of him being your father who loves you and cares for you. You do not need to go off and fix yourself before you come back to God. Rather, David is showing us that we ought to pour our hearts out to the Lord. We ought to pour our hearts out to him in the confidence that he will hear us. But we'll come to that in just a moment. Go ahead and do those very things. Pour your heart out to the Lord and plead that the Lord will give you a renewed sense of his presence and his committed love in your life. By the way, this is also a helpful thing to pray for other people who are going through times of grief. But the Lord would show himself a present help in the time of their trouble. On the other hand, if David felt like he was experiencing the heavy chastising hand of the Lord, he could be asking the Lord to turn away from that discipline. Right? So instead of saying, Lord, return to me, he could be saying, Lord, turn away from judgment like that, Turn and show me, as it were, your other face. In verses 1 through 3, David pled that the Lord would show grace and favor toward him by not bringing him into judgment. It fits quite nicely to hear David as saying in verse 4, Now, O Lord, I am asking you to turn away from judging me at all, that you return and be my Savior the one who delivers me from all my enemies. So I don't know how to choose between those two translations because they both work, whether it's returned to me or be turned over the Lord. But actually, I don't think it matters that much. They have the same general meaning as we pull the two of them together. David is praying the Lord would change the way that David feels about his relationship with his God. Turn, O Lord, deliver my life, Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. The critical thing for us to see is not whether this is turn or return. The critical thing for us to see is the basis on which David offers up his prayer. David offers his prayer on the basis of who God is, that he is a God of steadfast love. As Alan Ross observes, Steadfast love is the covenant word. It expresses God's unwavering faithfulness to his covenant promises to his people. 
The loyal love of the Lord is the reason he should be delivered, not simply because he has a covenant that is characterized by God's faithful love to his people, but because the covenant promises of the Lord's loyal love would fall into disrepute if he did not demonstrate them by delivering his suffering servant. You see what Alan Ross is getting at? Uh, on the one hand, God is a God of steadfast love, and so David says, be that God. That's who you are. But he's also saying, that's how you glorify yourself, too. You're not just abstracting the God of steadfast love. You glorify yourself as you manifest your steadfast love and act on my behalf. Ross continues, David has no other basis on which to make his appeal than God's faithful love, but he needs no other. God's faithful covenant love is sufficient. That is why it is at the heart of all his dealings with his people, even when they are sinful and in need of discipline. So here are two fundamental Christian truths that you need for your Christian life. First, the Lord is always consistent with his own character. The Lord does not, indeed the Lord cannot, deny himself. And second, Almighty God has so ordered the universe that his glory and the good of his people always go together. We say that again because I think a lot of people miss this. We think that God's blessing us is an abstract thing that's kind of detached from everything else. But God has so ordered the universe so that his glory and blessing his people always go together. When the Lord blesses his people, he's glorified. He's showing himself to be a good and gracious father, the perfect father that we have in heaven, that we can trust with complete confidence because he is that good. And when God glorifies himself, that is always something that is desirable and good for his true children. Here's the practical payoff from these truths. When you feel like you're drowning, like you're being overwhelmed by adversity and hardship in life, so that you don't even know how to pray, you can always return to the bedrock of these truths and offer prayers that are based upon the character of God and are based upon seeking God's glory in this world. God's character never changes, and God is always to be glorified. Those are prayers that your Father in Heaven will always listen to with delight. In fact, David only slightly shifts the focus of his prayer when he moves from the Lord's steadfast love in verse 4 to his desire to see the Lord praised in verse 5. Please look there with me, verse 5. David writes, For in death there is no remembrance of you in Sheol who will give you praise. Now, at first blush, I can be a little confusing. If we're not paying really close attention to the words, it can sound like David is saying, you know, when I die, I'm not going to remember you anymore. You know, dead people don't remember God. But that's not what he's saying. He's not talking about remembering. He's talking about remembrance. Perhaps the difference, uh, that distinction can be made here, we think about the difference between memory and a memorial. Like, memory is something I have. A memorial is something that's designed to create a memory, 
in the lives of other people. And you can see here in the parallelism, it's a synonymous parallelism, that remembrance and praise are functioning the same way in the two parts of the stanza. And what David is saying is quite practical. God wants to be praised in this world because that is good, it's right. And that only happens by living people praising him. He's saying, Lord, I know you desire that you would be glorified in this world. I desire to glorify you. But if I go down in the grave, I will no longer be singing your praises in this world. Now that is going to guarantee that you're not going to die, because of course you will. But it is a reminder that David is saying that his purpose for staying in this world is substantially tied up with glorifying God and enjoying him forever. Charles Spurgeon put it quite simply, churchyards are silent places. Now that might not strike you as a particularly big deal if you think that the whole purpose of life is dying and going to heaven when you die. But actually when we read the Bible, we discover that God cares a great deal about this present age. He cares about your work, your relationships. He cares about how nations relate to each other. And he cares in particular about gathering the people who will praise him in spirit and in truth. Isn't that precisely what Jesus tells the Samaritan woman as he meets with her at the well? You know, this woman's asking, you know, where should we worship God? Do we worship on this mountain? That's what Samaritans say. Do we worship in Jerusalem? That's what the Jews say. But Jesus says, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. See, we don't come to worship God just because we think it's a good thing for us to do. And we're not worshiping God because we think that's a way of kind of, you know, pulling on the lever and getting God's attention somehow. Uh, worshiping God is God's idea. He's gathering people together who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Now it is true that the Lord might be pleased to bless you and glorify himself through your faithful death. That happens throughout history. And ultimately it will happen to each and every one of us, right? So this is not a guarantee or a lockdown thing you're going to stay alive forever. After all, you don't really want to stay alive in this life forever. You want to be glorified. But it is a reminder that God himself is committed to gathering worshipers in this world and we ought to pray along the lines of our desire to see God glorified, not simply in the age to come, but in our day as well. So when you feel like life is completely coming apart, and you don't even know how to pray, here are two really good places to start. Pray on the basis of the Lord manifesting his steadfast love, and pray on the basis that you want to see the Lord being rightly worshipped, in this world. You can be confident that these two prayers are always in accord with God's will. Right? They are always in accord with God's will. I pray for specific things, even the healing of people. I know it's good to pray for the healing of our loved ones, but I can't know for sure what God's will is. But I do know that God is always a God of steadfast love, and I do know that the Lord delights 
to be worshipped and praised in this present world. Slow down and listen carefully to these words from the Apostle John. Uh, this is what John writes in 1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. And this is about praying in the will of God. John writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. Now, I trust that all of you realize that this doesn't make Almighty God into a vending machine where you kind of wrap things up and go, oh, this is God's will. I've got to wrap that up in what I want and throw it in the machine, and God's going to spit out the answers I like. And actually, that's really good news. Praying to Almighty God who is your Father is much better than sticking requests into a vending machine. Because the truth is, you and I often don't know how to pray as we are. We don't know what the best course is for my life or for other people's lives. And we bring our concerns and our prayers before our Father in Heaven, who rather than simply giving us what we ask for, gives us things that are, we wouldn't even imagine. He gives us things that are better for us than what we ask for. And He gives us those things that are most going to glorify Him and bless His people in the world. When we pray in accordance with God's revealed will, we can have confidence that he will use our prayers for the good of his people and for his own glory. I want to say you can take that to the bank, but it's a lot more certain than any bank in this present age. This leads us to the third great aspect of David's prayer. David is praying on the basis of the Lord's steadfast love, and he has prayed on the basis of wanting to see the Lord praised in this world. Now David prays on the basis of a glorious truth that the Lord does in fact listen to and answer the prayers of his people. Look at verses 8 and 9 with me. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. I wonder if you younger people are familiar with the phrase name dropping. Um, people my age are all familiar with it. Uh, name dropping is when you just casually throw into your conversation some names of significant people in a way that's designed to you know, make you look good. You know, like perhaps, um, you know, the other day I was having tea with Governor Sununu and he said the funniest thing. And there's not really any need to point out that there was 300, 300 other people having to keep Governor Sununu too. It wasn't like back out and all back deck. And I was like eight tables away from him, so like he couldn't even see me clearly. Um, but the idea of name dropping is that there's these important people in the world, the president, uh, CEOs of great companies or something, let's kind of drop them out there and then you can all bask in your pastor's kind of an important dude. But you know what? If I told you that I called up Tim Cook, who's the CEO of Apple Computer, because I had a bit of a problem and I wanted to help you with it, 
Uh, it would not be wrong to assume that I did not get past the secretary. In fact, I probably didn't get past the secretary's secretary to talk to Tim Cook. Because the uh, great ones of this world are mostly out of the reach of people like you and me. Now, that's just the way it works. But here's the most extraordinary thing. The God who spoke the universe into existence is never out of reach to you. Any moment of the day, you can speak with the God who created everything. And he hears your prayers, and he delights to answer the prayers of his people for your good and for his own glory. We are mindful that the Lord has always had a tender ear toward the cries of his people, and we see that, of course, in Psalm 6. But is there not also a sense in which we enjoy an even greater access to the Lord than the people did under the Mosaic administration of the covenant of grace? As the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 8, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and as children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. You know, in this life, any really good father just delights to have his young children rush into his lap, to just spend their life with him, to ask questions, to say, Daddy, I need your help. Daddy, I need your knowledge. Paul is saying, Almighty God is delighted in you as his children. Come before his throne of grace and run in and say, Abba, Father. And more than any father on earth, he is eager to give you what you need. Well, that's what David's doing. Even back in the old covenant. And in the middle of his prayer, his whole attitude changes. Now, if you read the commentaries, they would speculate all over the place. And the truth is, we don't know what happened. We don't know what flipped the switch in David's life. We can't be sure why exactly this change is taking place. But did you notice that David doesn't say, the Lord hears my prayers? This is a general statement. He writes, the Lord has heard my prayer. The Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. Well, I can't tell you what happened in David's life, and I can't fully explain it. But perhaps at times in your life when you've been broken hearted and pouring your heart out to God, suddenly it was like the Lord simply flipped the light switch. And you went from being deeply, deeply discouraged and oppressed to suddenly having confidence that God was for you and everything was going to be okay. Suddenly the Lord had restored to you the joy of your salvation. As one of my old professors, William Van Gerwen, puts it, when grace permeates into the depth of an anguished soul, Joy in the Lord enters faith, which no one can remove. Out of this renewed joy and confidence, 
David caps off his prayer with verse 10. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Here's a beautiful, and not to some of you, surprising truth. All of your enemies and all of God's enemies will ultimately be either converted or put to shame. Every single one of them. Right? Jesus isn't coming to bring in the kingdom at 80%. All of your enemies and all of God's enemies will ultimately either be converted or put to shame. Every single one of them. Now that doesn't mean that you will always be delivered from suffering. But it does mean that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that we have in Christ Jesus our Lord. So let us in our darkest hours find confidence in these bedrock truths. The Lord is a God of steadfast love. The Lord delights in the faces of his people, and the Lord is a God who hears and answers prayer. And let's remember that in our Good Shepherd, we in fact do have a friend who sticks closer to a brother. That is why we sing, What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Do your friends despise, forsake you? Take it to the Lord in prayer. In his arms, he'll take and shield you. You will find a solace there. Amen.